Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian grace infusion. We like to think cosmopolitan-ish guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by David Zoll and special guest Mandy Smith to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the pleasure this week of talking with Adam Morton. Adam is a Lutheran pastor in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and is a regular Mockingbird contributor and is soon to be starting graduate studies at the University of Nottingham to study with the great Simeon Zoll. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Adam as much as I did. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you drove here from Lancaster County? I did. I, not behind any buggies at all. It's funny. My friend Greg Strawbridge is a pastor out in that area, and he always sends me pictures of the Amish in the Apple store. <laughs> well, I mean, they drive by my house every day on the way to Costco. So, <laughs> where it, you know, the Costco has a shelter for where you, I don't know, you put your horses in your buggy and you tie them up there. And that's, you feel like a religion like that, it just sets itself up for the law? <laughs> like, 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 well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's intentional. That's absolutely. Yeah, so they never met a law they didn't like. So you are a pastor in Lancaster, and you're a Lutheran. You're a Lutheran's Lutheran. I'm some Lutheran's Lutheran. Now, where are you a pastor? Uh, I am at Holy Trinity Lutheran in Lancaster. That's downtown. And I am also the pastor of a—I'm an associate pastor at Holy Trinity, which is a big old church founded 1730. And I am really only part-time there, and I'm contracted out to another little church in town six blocks away— Christ Lutherans, a daughter congregation of Holy Trinity. That's much smaller. It's about 150 years old. Do you have a favorite? Am I allowed to say that? You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I can. Uh, well, yes, my current favorite is Christ because I am I am the show there. Well, as much as you can do Your the show there. Your favorite is Christ. My favorite. It, <laughs> I know, it's so say? pious. Which right? do you like more, Christ or the Trinity? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm more of a Christ guy. I'm more of a Christ guy. Uh, the the little church where I am the solo pastor half time is there. That's a very different experience and one I really love. That's wonderful. And you also are going to do PhD work. You just got accepted. Congratulations to the University of Nottingham. Right? I did Nottingham. I'm told. I don't know if you said whether you say ham or kind of swallow Nottingham. that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's more like that, but I don't know for sure. So you went to Luther Seminary. I went to Luther College and Luther Seminary. You are a marquee. I mean, you are like boilerplate, authentic, stamped Lutheran. Of some sort, which is funny because I'm not really an ethnic Lutheran like a lot of them are. But what, What's a non-ethnic? Uh, well, on my mom's side, we're pretty much all Polish. There aren't a lot of Polish Lutherans. But you don't say that at synod meetings. <laughs> I do. I, I especially it was back in Minnesota, you know, when as everybody was Norwegian or here in Lancaster, where everybody's German. I absolutely point that out because I'm neither of those things. You're you're a true individual. Now you're going to go work with uh, your doctor father. Will be what I call him on the podcast now is the great one, Simeon Zoll. Yeah, the greatest uh, Zoll child. Uh, Save the best for last. So that that's exciting. I think it is exciting. You um you to work with. 
someone that like not only has academic street cred, as they say, but also shares your own spiritual passions. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, hard work too, but a, a lot of fun. So, yeah. Let me ask you this. When I, like, I remember when I was in seminary, I, I was a geeky and someone said, do you want to work with like people? Like real people. And I was like, well, no, I want to work with fake people <laughs> if I can. No, but, and the reason a friend, a friend asked me this because she's like, well, you're so into books and theology. And so it, I feel like there's this stereotype. I don't know if it was true when you're in seminary, but well, there's the people that like want to be pastors and care about it. And then there's the people that want to be theologians. But I think actually, right, we need like more theologians that are pastoral and we need more pastors that are theologians. So like this, how do we, is, is that like a, is that a problem in the ELCA like it is elsewhere? Where oh you have this kind yeah. Of- I mean, when Luther Seminary was on a predominantly pass fail grading system when I was there and the joke was P is for pastor. <laughs> like you could request receiving a letter grade, but you knew who really didn't have a lot of, you know, uh, theological aspirations when they didn't bother. Uh, that said, there were some really fine pastors coming out of there, but it it's absolutely is a line. My, my little brother is a pure pastor. His theological instincts are excellent, but he has no interest in reading the books I read. He doesn't want to talk about the books I read. He just manages sort of to muddle his way through and end up saying exactly the same thing as those books. It's really sort of astounding. How do we – do you, do you see a way forward – I mean, I think that church life would be, I think, served right if this was more integrated. If 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 working pastors were like what Cornell West calls organic intellectuals, like like theologians on the ground, and if 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 theologians and Bible scholars were, you know, kind of pastors at heart, where you know we're thinking about complex, interesting ideas from the perspective of the, from the ground up. I don't know why I think about it from this angle, but I do. I think about it at least to an extent in terms of theological education. Um, I mean, we're seeing pretty much large-scale meltdown of seminaries in this country, uh, at least the mainline ones. Your own, uh, your own denominations, Luther Seminary in Philadelphia, which is a grand ole. I mean, that campus is gorgeous. I think that theological higher education ends up segregating these things more than it needs to. Um, it, 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 I mean, to a certain extent, it goes back to the way that disciplines were divided up by Schleiermacher in Berlin, you know, around 1800, where you have, here's systematic theology, and here are, you know, here's your exegetical stuff, and uh, here's church history, and over here's the practical stuff. You know, it's interesting that for Schleiermacher, though, he meant that as the capstone. He thought practical theology was like the... Like, I feel like the way we take it now is that it's it's sort of like oh they but he meant that it's like the the epics you, you know the epoch that you know the the, the climax right because he was a pastor right and a well, preacher and, and, and it's fair and I think there are much better and worse ways of doing it um, but one thing you might question is whether within the whole division there is a latent tendency to silo these things and once you've siloed them then theology isn't necessarily a pastoral discipline. Well, that's right. People go into biblical studies because they like telling people, this doesn't mean what you think it means. People go into history to tell you something you don't know. And people go into systematic theology to tell people you should think this. 
that's kind of I always think temperamentally, psychologically, uh, and I don't I haven't figured out why people go into practical theology. Maybe because they're because they, they like feelings. Exactly. I like feelings. Which I I, I, I do sometimes. <laughs> On Tuesdays. <laughs> okay, we first became acquainted through Mockingbird because you were writing in response to something that was written about my friend Bark Ampolo. Uh, yeah. He's been on the show. And David was like, uh, hey, go listen to this interview before you. Because you hadn't listened to that interview before you wrote your piece. And then you wrote it after that. Just sort of like, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I actually called you through Facebook. and was like, man, that was a really nice piece you wrote. That was the first time someone had ever called me through Facebook. I didn't know that functionality existed. Facebook's taking over. It's like the new phone. It's the right. new address. It's like your life is Facebook. So all of a sudden I had literally like fr- – like, accepted your friend request like two minutes before and all of a sudden i have a phone call from you through facebook on my phone I'm like what is going on yeah i really liked what you wrote i like i, I thought like it was uh it, you know it's really interesting it was well written it thank you uh you know i it, what got to me about it was it was I read this interview with the guy and it was everything every instinct i had from the new york times piece from oppenheimer's piece uh was held up by the interview by the mocking cast interview uh, with Bart. It, every single point, it was just amplified because I mean, it was it was a complimentary piece on him in the New York Times. But underneath it, all I could all I could see was this guy wants everything I don't like about the church, but without Jesus, who is the only thing I like about the church. Yeah, I, I feel like so. You know, Bonhoeffer. In letters and papers from prison, says like, you know, we need to come up with a religionless Christianity. And 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 what? And by that, I mean I take him to mean Paul Zoll in his systematics kind of gets it about the forms and trappings of religion. We've got to take them a little less seriously. I think is what Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer is saying. And I actually think he's like many things. I mean, Bonhoeffer was a prophet, missiologist, futurist. So you you just walk around the culture and you feel that like people. It, it, the, the rise in the nuns doesn't correlate to a rise in atheism. Like it's 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 not. So, you know, but Bar Campbell is the only person that wants. And I actually said this to me. So you want a, 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 a you know you want a, a godless Christianity. You want a religion without God. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. I was like, wow. It seems like you're selling a product that like. <laughs> what, what are you trying? To, it's like I, you have a better time like. Selling ice boxes to Eskimos or something. I mean, like it sounds like an onion piece, right? In fact, it was an onion piece. There was one a few years ago talking about a, a priest who just, you know, considers himself religious but not spiritual. He just likes going through empty rituals. <laughs> so, so you wrote uh, you wrote that piece, which I thought was well done. Also, uh, you've written several other things for Mockingbird, and you're going to be a speaker, a breakout speaker at the conference this year, right? Yes, I am going to say something about what it means to have just one God. Um, I sort of kind of know what I'm going to say about that, roughly, but there's no reason to say it now. Yeah, you got to show up to New York, and please come to New York. If for nothing else, Adam and I just had lunch together. Delightfully charming fellow, and you could meet him, hear his talk. Also, the food is really, really good at the New York conference. Yeah, it's not just going to be pizza like I just gave him. It's going to actually be— good pizza, by the way. utensils and everything. (laughs) So, okay, can you tell me a little bit about Haman, right? And, like, I think when we first talked, 
you blew me away. And I actually uh, told my intern to call you. I was like, call him, get some Heyman references, and you're going to get yourself an okay. education. David Pearson calls you just to get info on Heyman, who I think I had only read about in secondary sources. I think I first read about him in Bart's 19th century history of 19th century theology. That that could be, which is funny because Haman's not a 19th century figure, but he shows up in the 19th century yeah, figures. Right? right. So we're talking about Johann Georg Haman, who was a sometime customs official, uh, literary critic, writer, sort of a theologian, a philologist, friend and neighbor of Immanuel Kant, um, and in my view, and admittedly in my limited view, I haven't made an exhaustive study of the century, uh, but in my view, the most interesting Lutheran theologian of the 18th century, which is saying something because I said he was basically a customs official, uh, but fascinating nonetheless. If you're a customs official in the 18th century in Germany— like what are you? T- are you just like looking at a document? I mean, what do you? What do he you? He was translating French stuff in Königsberg uh, for you know Frederick the Great's government. That's what he was doing. He was so he was he was good in a lot of languages, and he was sitting there translating French documents for tax purposes. I think I I, I don't know the details, but that's what it has yeah. seemed to me. I, Cor- I think I heard Cornell West a graduate seminar say something like, and this might be crazy, but like. Oh, Cornell said, so it's not crazy. The guy's made, he's a genius, but like I might be recalling it wrongly. But so Hegel was like from like Bavaria, down south in Germany, right? Now, and, and Kant was uh, Hegel up taught in, in Jena. I don't, or was in, is that right? He lived in Jena anyway. Which is south or no? Uh, sort of. He, On the east side. I, basically, he was saying that Kant. My German geography's crappy. Yeah, minus, my, yeah, minus two. See, basically, he was saying Kant, because Kant's in Konigsberg, and like it's a trade. Place and you know, yes, things are coming from France and Scotland. He's like, so Kant's reading things like Hume because he's getting books that are coming, whereas Hegel's a little f- f- further off the reservation. And so, one of the reasons the skepticism and, and things aren't don't play the same role in Hegel is because well, he's just kind of reading different stuff. <laughs> like, 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 there's a kind of I don't know, it's interesting, like, because you think about Jonathan Edwards, right? Like, some people say, like, I, I think I heard someone say once, we don't even know if Edwards. Read Calvin because at that time it was pretty tough to get a copy of the Institutes in America. All these things, it's so you know, talk about life on the ground, right? Like, how how much of what we think is just based on where we live, what we're eating? It's 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 a good point. It's a good point. I mean, I don't know if if Kant scholars think of Kant this way. They probably do. They're probably so far ahead of me that I sound like an idiot for saying it. Um, but it was to a certain extent news to me. Uh, Haman levels some pretty withering attacks on Frederick the Great, which is a dangerous move, right? To be writing these funny pieces where I mean, it's one of them. It's not like today to the Solomon in Prussia. You know, he 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 damns him with just completely overbearing praise. It's not like today where we live in a free society where you can critique the leader. Oh Oh, wait, wait. whoa! whoa. We can critique him bigly. It's fine. Huge, huge. Kant ends up being, and this is an accusation then that's going to come through in certain ways in Haman. Uh, Kant and others end up being sort of an apologist for Frederick's imperialism. Um, that's that's what they do. There's, 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 there's something of that to the basics of his thinking. 
So you're saying you don't want to go to grad school to become an apologist for imperialism? What are you? What are you trying to? Work? Well, well that'd really be exciting. Trying, wouldn't it? I'm trying to get. I mean, that actually pays. Would 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 Putin hire me? Because that's a consideration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love when John McCain, when George Bush said, "I look at that man," and I, I looked in his eyes and I saw his soul. And McCain said. When I look in his eyes, I only see three th- three letters: K, G, and B. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, so, yeah. So Haman. So why? Okay, why is it worth a pastor's time to study Haman? Like, what in it? What in Haman is like? Because you're dealing with people that are uh, facing grief, loss, who have fragile dreams and hopes that are, you know, tenacious and precarious. I mean, re- every day. You're dealing with people that are immersed in the everyday, ordinary human condition. Why? What? What will Haman? What light will Haman shed on that practice? Well, directly, he might. And this is going to sound strange. He might not be worth the pastor's time, just because he's notoriously difficult. He's not difficult like Kant is difficult. Uh, he's not even difficult like Hegel is difficult, though they're difficult in very different ways. Um, Amon's difficult because he writes very short pieces, which are incredibly convoluted and involved. Uh, he is purposely offending against the style of the times. And so since we're talking about late 18th century, you know, sort of peak enlightenment here, uh, clarity is prized. And Haman goes out of his way to be obscure. He'll throw in jokes in Greek and references the most obscure mythological references you've ever heard and snippets of Old Testament passages in Hebrew. This is like T.S. Eliot or James Joyce. I mean, this is this yes, kind of writing. It, it feels, well, there's a highly literary character to his writing. If you've ever read, if you tried to read uh, any of Kierkegaard's famous pieces, you know, Fear and Trembling, for example, which has this narrative flow to it. It's very unusual for a philosophical piece. Kierkegaard is borrowing this sort of stylistic move from Haman. He is following Haman in using extremely unusual style to communicate a philosophical point. Uh, Kierkegaard and, and Haman are not identical in this, but there's there's no question who his predecessor is, who he's who he's drawing from in making in in writing that way. Uh, but if anything, I find Haman somewhat more difficult. So he'll have a piece that's like nine pages long. And in a in a you know a good edition of it, half of that will be footnotes explaining what the heck is these things are references to. So it takes work. But he meant it to take work. Unlike writing that is clear and on the surface, you know, some theology you get in books that are 800 pages long, and they have managed to say literally everything they can think of that could be said on a topic. It's interesting in a way. Um, only once you've finished that book, you probably don't ever want to pick it up again. I feel like you're talking about John Milbank's theology. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I've read that book. I had to read that book like three times. And I like, when I look at that book, like there's something about me that just like it revulses. Not that, not just, I mean, it's a good book, but I mean, like, first off, it reads like it's a bad translation, but he's an English speaker. Right. <laughs> the prose is so like weird. Haman is as far from that as you can get, where he might not have an entire sentence making this point that 
Milbank could develop into 20 pages. It might be just a phrase within a sentence, but it's so suggestive. And the way he has tied it to other ideas is so artful and so interesting that it's worth pursuing. And what does he tell Fabulously creative theologian. What does he tell you about Luther? He gets an aspect of Luther that I'm not sure anyone else in that century got. I'm not sure many contemporary Lutherans get him. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, it's a German theologian, still living, retired out of Tübingen, named Oswald Bayer. He's probably been mentioned on this podcast before. Bayer's great. Books over there. I'm, I'm, I'm there just you starting go. to crack There it. you okay. go. A contemporary in descent. It's I'll, right I'll talk next about to that book cancer is funny. <laughs> Bayer is a great Luther scholar and a systematic theologian in his own right. He is also one of the foremost contemporary interpreters of Haman. And so Bayer can help to uh, to pull out elements here. And by the way, uh, his his little book on uh, on Haman, a contemporary in descent, Johann Georg Haman as radical enlightener, um, is excellent, and it's really a good introduction to Haman, and you're going to need it. And thanks to David Peterson for getting the intel on this from you, calling you, and getting me that book. It's also translated by Roy A. Harrisville and Mark Mattis. I know Mark Mattis a little bit, and I like him a lot. Roy Harrisville has a special place in my heart. He's, I think, 94 now. He preached at my ordination a few years ago, and he was dynamite. So he's a retired New Testament scholar and has done a lot of translation work, a brilliant guy, and one of the dearest human beings on this earth to me. That's lovely. Um, So I love Roy, but that beside the point. There aren't many Lutheran theologians who have grabbed onto the pieces in Luther that Haman does. Uh, Specifically, and I don't know how much he read Luther, to tell you the truth. I assume some. (laughs) <laughs> but I couldn't I don't I don't know that. I, I don't catch any he echoes around. him. He echoes him so well in places. This is like PT Forsyth in Karl Bart. Like it's so you know, people like some people say that he anticipated Bart on so much. Maybe he's just channeling him. Yeah, yeah. Haman gets the links between creation and eschatology in a huge way. And let me tell you, uh Lutherans in the seventeenth, eighteenth, most of the nineteenth century don't really have a good sense of eschatology. The apocalyptic aspect of Luther, they didn't grasp. That's a 20th century recovery for the most part. And we had to reread a lot of things from Luther and go, oh. Uh, and that even ended up influencing New Testament studies through people well, like Ernst Cazel. a lot of theology. I mean, I, Doug Farrow's stuff on John Calvin, you know, on the Ascension and the Eucharist. You know, he says, you know, the, the challenge is like where Calvin's, instinct is to think up with our human Christ, or really maybe we should think forward. Hmm. Like Christ is coming to us back from the future. Mm. And so, you know, like, I just think that that kind of, I don't know if it's kind of platonic influences or whatever, you know, it, we, we, like this kind of like eschatology being upward instead of forward. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of a, a hang up in a lot of Western theology. It, it absolutely is. Well, there's a reason for that. I mean, we're it, in the West, we are on some level Platonists, we're right. We're, we're the intellectual descendants of Greeks for whom the division is upper and lower. Christianity is Platonism for the masses. Except, except, right. Except to these Greek thinkers, for the most part, time was largely meaningless. Right? History, as such, is not that important. Um, whereas you look at the Hebrew prophets, the division isn't higher and lower as much as it is. One can say past and future, but that's almost putting it too lightly, right? The day of the Lord yeah. is this 
looming thing, this enormous thing. But somebody like Haman gets that. Um, and so he will make these remarkable connections. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go from the top of my head. But at one point he refers uh, in a piece called Aesthetica in Nuce uh, to how the – oh, what is it? The – oh, the – the poet at the beginning of time and the thief at the end of time are the same. And he's referring to God who speaks the world into existence and Jesus Christ hanging on the cross between the two thieves. Mm. It's, it's just a remarkable statement and a boatload of theology there in one phrase. That's amazing. Uh, so it eminently worthwhile. So, like, tell me, you know, as someone who's got a foot in both worlds like what what thing do you think theologically is like the best rising star the thing you're thinking like hey if this catches on it could really benefit the church and then what's the thing that you think is like man this is going to be out before it's in this is a dangerous trend faddish that we should just if you bought that book sell it right back on amazon well I don't know how new it is. I know it's not new. I mean, that's the point. If it's new in theology, it's probably demonic. Uh, <laughs> but I will listen to anybody who puts the forgiveness of sins front and center. And there is never such a critical mass of those people that it's going to seem like, well, that's what everybody's saying. Do you think that where, why that why the forgiveness of sins is getting a new hearing is because like we're – it's interesting. We're a more permissive culture in some ways, but we're also a less forgiving culture. Like, like you know, like the the shaming and the exclusion, like the. That's right. I think we're tremendously legalistic culture. I mean, I think it's very interesting, right? Because a generation ago, people would have looked at Old Testament passages having to do with dietary regulations and said, "Well, I, I don't know how I can relate any of these to my congregation." And now, now we're writing pop books, right? <laughs> like, well, this is easy, right? I mean, we we we're. We are legalists. Uh, true antinomians are so unfathomably rare; they're not worth worrying about. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's it, it, yeah, it, it's a fiction. But actually, as, as much as we put forgiveness out there, right? You know, for you know all sorts of popular books on forgiveness and whatever else. Um, but in the same way, there are popular books on you know gratitude and things like this. This non-specific gratitude, gratefulness. I'm practicing gratefulness. I heard somebody say the other night. Well, that's great. I mean, to whom? For what? What? Do, what do you mean? Um, actually, being able to say to somebody, "Your sins are forgiven." For one Christian to be able to say that to some, to another, or to anybody else, is incredibly powerful. And it's a vulnerable moment, and it's something that this world's never going to believe. And so it's just – it's not going to be the next big thing in theology, but it will always be the true thing and the real next thing. Yeah, that's why like we – I guess why I guess we leave like things like the virgin birth in the creed because like if you can believe that, then maybe we can convince you that your sins are forgiven. <laughs> like that's like, you know, it's, it's almost the opposite. It's, it's funny because how the logic tends to work for me is no apologetic works for me. But having my sins forgiven makes me think, you know what? I'll take any of the rest of this too because the one who says that, I'll take him at his word. It's funny. I was talking with um, a friend uh, recently who was actually Jewish and she's a, got, she's a co-host of one of the best podcasts on the interwebs. 
but we're talking about like marriage and things like that and, and marriage she's getting married and finding you know a, 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 someone to marry you and all these things and i said you know basically the the, the, the stanley harawas virtue people like hate this like but i would marry anybody and she's like that's that's really interesting why i said well because if if i everyone needs to hear the word of forgiveness of sins and I'll marry them. I don't care what they're doing. Like what? What kind? Because they'll be, then they'll think, "Oh, that's the guy that didn't shame us." And when our lives are falling apart, maybe they'll come back and let me free, let me tell them that their sins are forgiven. That's why I think I wouldn't turn anyway anybody away. Well, I, that's it. It really is a pastoral consideration, and this is where you know I I I I, I know people who do good work in ethics, but I always have to push ethics into the background a little bit. Not that we don't teach these things, but pastorally, I need to be able to keep that channel open so that someone knows that when they come to me and confess something, that exactly what they're going to hear, which is your sins are forgiven. If it's anything else, I've screwed up. Um, and so I, I, can't, I can't be a faithful pastor if that isn't what people are sure they're going to get from me. I, I, I appreciate that about you. I, like, I wish... I heard that more. <laughs> I wish I heard more pastors talk like that. If you're listening and you're within an hour of Lancaster, go to Christ Church, not the Trinity. Don't go, run from the Trinity. No, uh, no, that's, <laughs> Only it, Trinity's a great church. Yeah, that's, that, no, I like it. It is really refreshing to hear you say it. And, like, and it, your sincerity is, is palpable. But, so what's the, uh, what's the thing that like is trendy? It's out before it's in. It's, it's a poison pill. It's... Oh, it's all sorts of stuff on virtue ethics, and I mean that's that's had its moment. I mean, the beloved community, I hate that. Some, I, I, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> beloved community, hate it. I hate it. I hate it. You know, that sounds terrible. It's like, yeah, love sucks. Um, and, and community, ooh. That could be your dissertation title. Love sucks. Community, ooh. These are these are good things in theory, but you can't get them by pursuing them. Uh, this is I, it, a book that I don't even like that much, though I've taught it, uh, which is Bonhoeffer's Life Together. Uh, but he's got a line in there to the effect of he who loves the community destroys the community. Yeah, right. He talks about the danger right. of imagination, like the people with a dream or a vision. Yes, like, exactly. You'll kill it. You'll kill it. They want to build the community. And they work so hard on building the community, but it's not a thing you can do directly because community is nobody. Yeah. There are only people and persons. If you love the people, yeah. the community gets built, right? Yeah. If, if that word of the forgiveness of sins stands first and last, you'll have a community. Do, do you feel like there's a move, like, I, I see it with... Mostly people that come from evangelical type backgrounds who have moved beyond a kind of wooden view of biblical inerrancy. Like Paul Zoll talks about this in the systematics, the objectification of religion. So like, well, we don't have an errant Bible. So we'll replace that with an errant, an errant church and character ethics. And our witness makes it makes the reality credible and all that. Like, it, it, it seems like just a, you shift the locus of the high anthropology from the biblical writers to the writers of the church's contemporary story. Uh, this is, I mean, this is this is the quintessential modern problem, right? You're just looking for your footing. There's some kind of solidity here, um, and it's very difficult to accept that we're not going to have 
that solidity except in the most ephemeral of things, which is just a word. Yeah. Right? Not not even a word backed by a robust ontology. Um that was a shot at radical orthodoxy, if you couldn't tell. I feel like, I feel like this is like, what is that, mystery science theater? Right. Like, I would have just, by the way, that was a shot at Milbank. <laughs> right. Just a word. Because God says it, and his word creates the world out of nothing. And so, if he says your sins are forgiven, well, that's solid. Um, if he says, you're my beloved, well, that's solid. That's true. Uh, but we waste so much time on epistemology here in one way or another and trying, you know, still looking around for a foundation or if we realized foundations don't work, then something to substitute for it. And it's it's all a distraction from what actually counts. Yeah, the gospel's not some epistemic theory. It's a word of deliverance. That's right. That's right. That's the bedrock because ultimately the gospel's Jesus Christ himself. What's 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 behind that? What's beyond that? Well, nothing. It's just him. Adam, thank you for coming on the podcast, and we'll have you back uh, in the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love it. Just might make life easier. Let's swallow, will it? You made a fine career out of guilt. Maybe he just did the best he could with what he had. Maybe he just did the best he Welcome back. Yet another week and another podcast is being recorded. Good day to you both. David Zoll from Charlottesville, Virginia, the animating force of the zeitgeist of all that is Mockingbird is here. And we have a guest today. Sarah Condon is off today recuperating from a – she gave one of the best talks I've ever heard her give. I, I, Tyler, Texas was – David, you gave a great talk. Your dad gave a couple great talks. It was awesome. So – we have sitting in for Sarah, Mandy Smith, friend of the show, multiple time guests, and now guest host for the first time, coming yes. live from Ohio. Hi, Mandy. Hi, it's great to be with you today. And you're coming to us from your bathroom. <laughs> yes, I am. It's my own special place. <laughs> Not just Ohio, a bathroom in Ohio. No, yeah. exactly. My bathroom. It's a lovely bathroom. It mm. works for and, this purpose. David, uh, how did you feel about Tyler, that wonderful weekend we had yeah i golly i'm still i'm still processing i'm still i i thought it was firing on all cylinders i don't know how else to say it i just know that matt mcgill and megan mcgill and that whole crew down there have put together something so phenomenally spectacular it's it's i feel kind of dishonest taking any credit we're just it's just association really we just show up and get to take part in this incredible community. And uh, and then lots of people from out of town were there. And um, I can't wait for people to hear Dad's talks and Sarah's um, Sarah's sort of masterful. Uh, Dear Reformation, it's not you, it's me. Uh, theology, we love to hate talk. It was really... It was really fun. It was fun recording the the podcast too in front of people. That was the first time we'd ever done that, right, Scott? A live studio audience, live to tape studio audience. Yeah, it was the stars at night were certainly big and bright in Tyler, <laughs> Texas. And Mandy, what's going on in your world? You're, Sounds good. It's th- making me wish I could have been there. You guys are doing some such good stuff. So I'm I'm honored on to our, be a on part our good of it. days. On our good days. <laughs> Honestly, I um, 
If you were to ask me the places that I'm really excited about where things are happening in the American church, there are like four or five organizations that I would list and Mockingbird would definitely be at the top of the list. And I'm oh, really, kind I'm of, kind of excited because... Um, checks in the mail. Yes. <laughs> uh, the last week of April, four out of the five top organizations in this country are doing a gathering, including you guys. Uh, Miss Yo Alliance, uh, the Inhabit Conference is happening, Q Ideas, and then the Mockingbird thing at the end of April. And uh, I don't know, I just kind of feel like the spirit is really behind all of that, and I can't wait to see what is going to be happening in all those wonderful places. It's a bummer that we have to choose between them all, but yeah. um, but I'm just, I just feel like something is something is afoot. Mm. The spirit of bad uh, scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit of cheap hotels, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I always wonder if that, about that. Is it, are there hotel seasons? Are there, like, you know, like President's Week? Or, like, there's all these times in February where there's all these conferences. Yeah, so I wonder, oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there's yeah, algorithmic conference season. Yeah, well, you it's can't dig- do anything in the summer. You can't do anything between Thanksgiving and Christmas, so it has to all be crammed into the other months of the year, I think. And especially, like, when... Uh, you know, when Easter is. So if, if you want anyone who works in a church to come, you have to be mm, sensitive yes. to that. Yes. Yeah. But on a more spiritual level, I do think there is something else going on. So Thank I can't you. wait to hear what happens in all those spots. And I, I wish I could be at, at your gathering, but I know good things are going to be happening there. Mandy, you're an encourager. Thank you. And let's turn, let's turn to, uh, to some, there's a, we got a plethora of good, uh, material to talk about today, but the, uh, on a lighter note, there's. Uh, I just want to apologize ahead of time if I offend you with any of my microaggressions. <laughs> uh, if I, uh, uh, yeah, um, you know, I'm trying not to have a sullen face like those who don't uh, put oil on their face in fasting, and you know, Scott is. I want to uh, repress my microaggressions, but take us to McSweeney's, David. Yeah, yeah. Scott is referring to an amazing bit of satire uh, that uh, was produced by Aaron Auerbach over at McSweeney's. Uh, a, a series of emails to a sociology 101 class, um, kind of satirizing the entire microaggression phenomenon, and which has become, I guess, like a really easy target. Um, this is done extremely well, so we had to talk about it. It's called, Please Forgive My Microaggressions. I'll read a cu- portions of a couple of the emails. It starts out sort of, you know, mild and then gets more intense as the breakdown mm. occurs. Hello, class. Some concerns about things that have been discussed in class have been brought to my attention, and I want to sincerely apologize for upsetting, offending, or isolating anyone. I promise that was never my intention. When I started Tuesday's lecture with, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, I thought I sounded chipper and whimsical. I should have been more thoughtful. Some of you had a bad morning. Some of you weren't feeling well. Some of you may have been nursing a hangover. No judgment, but you were still dedicated enough to show up to class sporting a baseball cap or messy bun. You didn't need my needling greeting. And sort of it goes on from there. Of course, she talks about gender nonconformity. And then uh, the next email is, Hello, class. Please forgive the amount of time that has lapsed since my last group correspondence. I've been very busy addressing many of your individual questions and it has proved very time-consuming. Please know that I am not complaining. Your thoughts, comments, and feelings are incredibly important to me and everyone else at the university. I'm proud to say I've gotten my average response time to your queries down to fewer than five minutes. It's been much easier to do this since my husband moved out last week. (laughs) I have read about half of your papers and I wanted to let you know I will give full credit to those of you who felt a vision board was a more powerful way to make your point. And then it sort of goes on. And then the final one um, is 
Hi, students. It just sort of it dispenses with class. I respect your right to protest injustice. Perhaps I was naive, but I never imagined I would be the focus of your rage. It seems that in my effort to appease everyone, I have become too attentive. Some would say obsessive. One of you even used the word, quote, paranoid to describe the tone of my recent status update. Parenthetically, I was only kidding. I'm not really going to have sorry for everything tattooed on my forehead, so I won't have to spend 10 minutes atoning at the beginning of each class. And then the very Mm. final one, it just says, hi, class. Good luck on the final exam. I wanted you all to know that effective immediately I am taking an indefinite sabbatical. Please do not respond to this email as this account will be shut down the moment I hit send. (laughs) That's pretty great. It's so sad at the same time as it's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there. This is sort of that that Yale thing that we're talking about, and I, I wonder if they're making this up too much. But it certainly makes for some funny copy. Mm. Well, as the wife of a college professor, I get stressed out by the number of emails that he doesn't answer. He gets thousands and thousands of emails, and it's just so much easier for students to send him a quick note than to actually talk to him in class, which is what he'd always prefer. And uh, if they haven't listened in class, then they want to get his attention by email or something, you know. And so to have that kind of boundary of like what is mine to do and what is not mine to do and are these folks customers or do I have the permission to actually stretch them, mm-hmm. uh, that's just always a tricky a tricky balance. And, yeah. Mm. Well, I, uh, I don't have many microaggressions right now. <laughs> I, feel very, I, feel, uh, I feel remarkably non-aggressive. So, um, but I'm sure as the day goes on, I shall. Sorry and, for everything. Exactly. <laughs> just in case. But let's just do a preemptive uh, blanket catch-all apology. So uh, on a more serious note, though, this, we had this one article, right, about, uh, David, about uh, moral indignation. Yeah, it's an article over at Reason.com, which I think is sort of an atheistic uh, libertarian publication of some kind. But with their... Uh, Wait, that's a big focus group. <laughs> that's a big demo. <laughs> I, I'm sure people at, at Network Television, dude, what, what are we with a 30 to 50 atheist libertarian demo? I mean, the, That's well, who sells commercials. Free minds and free markets. That's what they're promoting. Um, however, uh, you know... Whatever they're reporting on some interesting social science out of I think the University of Southern Mississippi. So where's Sarah when you need her? But um, she, it's moral outrage is self-serving. Psychologists say that's the headline, and this is of course a very timely uh, report. Uh, they say when people publicly rage about perceived injustices that don't affect them personally, we tend to assume this expression is rooted in altruism. A, quote, disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. But new research suggests that professing such third-party concern, what social scientists refer to as moral outrage, is often a function of self-interest, wielded to assuage feelings of personal culpability for societal harms or reinforce one's own status as a, quote, very good person, capital V-G-P. The, very um, good. A tremendously good person. I'm a very good person. <laughs> the, this conventional construction, moral outrage is the purview of the especially righteous, is called into question by, specifically by research on guilt. They say feelings of guilt are direct threat to one's sense that they are a moral person. And accordingly, research on guilt finds that this emotion elicits strategies aimed at alleviating guilt that do not always involve undoing one's actions. Furthermore, research shows that individuals respond to reminders of their group's moral culpability 
aka Americans contribute to global warming, sweatshop, yada, 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 with feelings of outrage at third-party harm doing. Feelings of moral outrage long thought to be grounded solely in concerns with maintaining justice may sometimes reflect efforts to maintain a moral identity. In other words, self-justification is at stake. And uh, this is something I mean, we've talked about from every conceivable angle at this point. Um, it, it doesn't mean that the moral outrage is completely non-justifiable, but to ignore that there's a signaling and a self-justifying component to it, uh, it certainly accounts for some of the um, irrationality or the emotional vehemence and, in, in fact, violence of some of the moral outrage we are seeing today that it is such a turnoff uh, I, to me personally, um, though, of course, I, I, you could disagree. But, hey, you cannot disagree with social science. They, they know everything. Are you <laughs> I'm vi- outraged right now. I mean, Who you guys are both very good people. So I want to hear what you have to think say about this. Mandy, who are you outraged at? <laughs> Anyone? Um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't feel outraged that much. So I'm a bit of a it's all this time. It's all that time you've been spending with the Canadian Mennonites. That's it. That'll do it. I got that out of my system last week with the Canadian Mennonites. Um, no, sorry. I can't help you on that question. I guess I'm a VGP. <laughs> VGP. I, I do think that there is something to that, right? Like, I mean, how often, like, do we... Um, is, is outrage like it, I think this is uh, Jonathan Haidt in his work. He talks about how in argumentation, like basically why, let's say you're talking about gun rights or gun control or Israeli-Palestine issues, whatever it is, on contentious issues, when you're in some kind of debate, that basically the reason those encounters aren't persuasive is that you are really not trying to offer reasons that the other side would understand and be sympathetic to, but you are actually telling your crowd you're part of the in-group. So you mm-hmm. repeat the assumptions everyone else shares mm-hmm. uh, to sort of show how out of touch and, you know, thick the other side is or, or you know, just wrong. So I think that it's how it goes up, right? Like so much of our uh, self-expression, whether it's politically, theologically, culturally, is, is about our own emotional needs, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, this is why, like, you know, uh, social media, like, seldom makes us, like, it feels good when you post something that is expressing your view on a controversial issue. There's a kind of venting that takes place for a second. But the studies show, actually, it makes you more resentful the more you're on the mm. long term. Well, I think if this is, you know, this phrase collective guilt is really helpful because we're so overwhelmed by the fact that we are victims of this society and yet at the same time perpetuating the same problems. We can't help being a part of, you know, the auto uh, world that is destroying the atmosphere and yet at the same time we might hate it and yet what else can we do? You know, everything that we're a part of, we hate it and yet at the same time we're too small in ourselves to actually personally overcome and so we become, you know, I know most of us now that we're aware of all of the outcomes of every decision that we make are just crippled by, by you know, what should I buy and what should I wear and what should I eat because I have to think about where it all came from and how it affects everybody else and so um, I think when we uh, overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And I think that's the right use of that word. I know it's always misused, but I always forget. But I think when we're, when we're overwhelmed by this collective huge thing that, that we are outraged by, I think that a personal response just wouldn't feel adequate. And so to, to garner some kind of like big social media response or to, to have 
to have a response that feel it feels more fitting and right to respond to this collective guilt with collective outrage and um it feels so small to just say i lament that or i confess that that just doesn't feel quite as satisfying mm. there's like there's like trump there's like um there's something comfort right in this tribalistic mm. like at least with the tribe i'm not alone yeah so there's maybe there's the gratification of like the collective uh well what borg and what that (laughs) article says is that the 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 deeper your fear that you might actually not be in that in group the louder you're gonna get like the Mm. the 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 more afraid you are that they might reject you that if they only knew how much how big your carbon your personal carbon footprint was then they would cast you out um then the, the louder you get about it I'm not afraid of being in the out group. <laughs> I'm not afraid. <laughs> no, it's like a, it, it's a little, yeah, it's self-defeating, but also something that which, with which we're living. And I think we have to be upfront about it. Yeah. Well, several of these articles actually made me think about this phenomena where we often will read an article that might say like, studies have found that people who sing in groups are 10% more happy than those who don't, or studies have found that those who pray are 50% more peaceful or whatever. So you should sing in groups or so you should pray. And um, the reality is, you know, before psychology was studying these things, there were things that were true of human beings that God actually knew. And and he may not have said studies have shown that prayer is good. He just said pray. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Obedience is not our high point, really, but um, so many of these things that we spend our time worrying about like this, uh, this is what confession is for, this is what lament is for, and those things don't seem meaningful or helpful but or powerful. Um, but if we personally mm. will enter into those practices that we've been told centuries ago to enter into, it might actually form a way forward for us collectively if we if we are willing to begin that personally but it's never really maybe we need to have a study about the power of confession and the, there probably are some out there already but i haven't read them yet the power of lament or the power of confession and then maybe we would do it if we had some statistics for it you know yeah all right yeah. social theorists out there you've heard mandy smith has spoken do Get it to i want to hear from you the gauntlet's been thrown down <laughs> it's a scandal it's an outrage how a gal gets a husband today. If you make one mistake, then the moon is bright. Then they tie it to context, so you'll make it every night. It's a scandal. It's a outrage. When her family turn on you and say, You gotta take and make an honest woman out of Nell. And make and make an honest evil lie like hell. It's a David, let's uh, move on to uh, the Benedict option and responses to Rod Dreher and from Australian very literate people. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get a name here, but some no. uh, a friend Trisha Stone sent me this. Um, are, so, if people aren't aware of the Benedict option, it Rod Dreher is a thinker and writer who's been very prolific and. Um, he just put out a book called The Benedict Options, getting reviewed all over the place, talking about how do Christians respond in light of kind of overwhelming uh, cultural defeat or um, especially a certain social issues or uh, what they what perceived antagonism. And um, you can argue whether or not he's got a basis for saying that, but it, it's it's based on a sort of apocalyptic view of history. Uh and yet, I don't want to reduce Rod's argument because I think that there people should read the book before they actually respond. But I, 
Maybe that's too much to ask. However, um, that's and, not going to stop me. I'll, not, I'll respond without reading. <laughs> and w- well, we've we've talked about it on Mockingbird at length now for a few years because he's been talking about it for a few years. And um, it's interesting that he wrote this, of course, before the election. So I wonder how how it would change now. But um, what what Rod had posted this this week was a response to a review that Elizabeth Brunig, who I usually I usually really like, she reviewed his book and kind of focused on the political aspects of what he was talking about, a retreat from public life. And uh, there was a very interesting Australian commentator who wrote in. So that's what I wanted to read to you, because I think that there's some salient points here. Um, read it with an Australian accent, please. Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> not. I'm not even going to try. I'm not, I, 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 would, I, almost asked, I should have asked you to do this, but I've got it in front of me here. It says, as democracy goes on, its horizons are increasingly limited to the individual and the state. The individual as the reason and justification of all social life and the state as the ultimate horizon of human experience in life, accountable and subordinate to nothing beyond it. Hence why government is just the word we use for things we do together. It's thought to be just common sense and why politics is considered to be the vehicle for human flourishing. Everything is politics because politics is the final horizon that shapes the conditions for individual liberty. As a consequence, increasingly democracy actively seeks to form people as little more than worker bees, consumers, and pleasure seekers, and begins to use its authority to marginalize and harass those groups that seek to create a social life that catechizes people into a different vision of the good life based on a different metaphysics. That is increasingly incomprehensible to them, aka the um, democracy uh, f- uh, be all end dollars, I guess. Simultaneously, it's simultaneously irrational and abusive to have a non to have a different horizon than government or politics. What Brunig fixates in on in the uh, in the uh, in her review is the political dimension because that's the ultimate horizon for democratically shaped people. The idea that you might somehow contribute to the common good by disengaging from politics a bit. And putting something non-political up as the ultimate horizon of social life just cannot be heard. Um, and then he gets to what my favorite portion of his little commentaries. You Americans really do think that history's arc bends toward justice. And so you are so insufferably Pollyannish that you think all stories ha- can have a happy ending if we just tried harder. I'm not sure there has ever been a culture as resistance to being theologians of the cross rather than theologians of glory as Americans. So, throwing oneself even harder into the rituals of social life and a democracy on democracy's terms will actually just increase the catechizing and formative effects of those rituals and liturgies, which are by definition of functioning as though God did not exist. Uh, and so, that's, that's what this Australian has to say. Um, what do you guys have to say? Mandy, speak in response, speak to Australians, for Australians. (laughs) Well, it is interesting. I love how he says, you Americans, you know, because there is a way. I've lived in the US and in Australia and in Britain and um, three very different contexts with this kind of, uh, you know, as far as that kind of Pollyanna-ish approach. And, you know, Britain used to run this whole empire and then fell from that and now has this kind of jaded, like, don't bother even trying because it's just going to (laughs) fail. And uh, Australia is this colony out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you know, 20-some million people um, 
that are kind of on the edge of the world watching, you know, when you watch the news in Australia, there's some local news, but it's a lot of like, let's watch what's happening everywhere else in the world. And, you know, really not a lot of economic or political power. And so to then look at somewhere like the United States that where people really, and this is Christians, especially sometimes, um, are really confident in, you know, if something's not working, we'll just work harder and we'll just throw some more money at it. We'll just get another technology of some kind and if if that doesn't work there's something wrong with us we've failed and god has forsaken us and that's honestly one of my biggest frustrations living here and also trying to lead people in a spiritual sense mm. yeah i uh, i am in complete disagreement with the author's uh presuppositions about democracy <laughs> but i just think i i think that like my teacher, Jeff Stout at Princeton, who's one of the smartest guys I've ever met, an atheist, wrote a great book called Democracy and Tradition. And he said that, you know, far, as opposed to democracy being a- anti-tradition, which is kind of this the way this guy frames it, he sees people like Walt Whitman and Dewey and Lincoln, all these people. Actually, there is a democratic tradition, right? And, and he thinks that, it, that, pi- that most democratic thinkers in this tradition that write salient, ethical and poetic uh you know pieces and things like that focus on um piety hope and love as the civic virtues and that while secular the the in a democracy like ours reasoning in, in is secularized in that you're you should it, we should try to exchange reasons for for our commitments in ways that everybody can understand it doesn't require secularism in the normative sense and so I just think like I, I, it's one of those things like I'm allergic to Alistair McIntyre. I, I, I don't like when people think that modern liberal capitalism is the most fallen expression of human culture. I think it's a fallen expression of human culture. Mm. There are some things that are more challenging. Right. And 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 hear the, the word of the law and judgment. And there are other things that are proleptic manifestations of grace breaking in the world in every culture, in any given culture. There's there's that reality. So I kind of. Um, mm. And I also think that like that the a lot of the Benedict Option stuff is a is is if Americans are addicted to theology of glory, we probably are. It's a theology of glory response. We'll up your glory. We'll make we'll make our own counterculture, as opposed to being more humble. You know, and an empower like embracing like that that blessed are we poor in spirit. You know, mm. so I don't, I I think Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity is a way better approach to a sort of what might feel like exilic times where, you know, the culture moves farther and farther away from a Judeo-Christian biblical story, you yeah. know, at the heart of its imagination. But that's just, those are my two cents. Uh, no. All my <laughs> theological commitments are coming out. <laughs> Your three cents, Scott. The, uh, um, hashtag my three cents. I think, uh, yeah, Matt Sittman, when he was writing about the Benedict option, and this is something I subscribe to it's like you, to to get into McIntyre's view of the sort of the, the the tip of the spear at the throat and kind of the, the we we're it's sort of the opposite of the Pollyannish thing like if Americans think that everything's bending towards progress constantly then this sort of Benedict thing is like everything's make it getting worse and worse and worse and sort of I think a much more uh, I don't know low anthropology view is that things are getting both better and worse at the same mm. time. And they're just de- better and worse in different ways, and that um, we uh, so so that yeah, there's there's a there's a lot to say about the Benedict option itself. One thing that struck me was Alan Jacobs, one of my favorite thinkers, has been talking about this, and he says he's not so much he has real reservations about the McIntyre's diagnosis of Western culture being the absolute worst thing that's ever happened in the t- history of the world to Christianity. Um, 
But it gave you, us it gave us women's rights in Seinfeld. I mean, there you go. That's all. It, <laughs> what else that's do all we need. I, I, I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, you got. That's, and I think we've already respond McIntyre. <laughs> exactly. Yada yada yada. Respond McIntyreans. <laughs> well, he he talks though about how he he what he's more Jacobs is not anti Benedict option, although he's got real reservations about it. He's anti anti Benedict option. He sort of critiques the critiques of the Benedict option more, even though he doesn't really agree with the Benedict option, because. He's so suspicious of his own self-interest. He says, my particular situation, my particular personal and vocational path leads me to want to be theologically conservative enough to be acceptable to the Christian institutions I love, but not so theologically conservative that I can't get published by reputable secular magazines and publishers. (laughs) And lo and behold, my convictions perfectly match my interests. How remarkably fortunate of me. And this is why I'm reluctant to simply dismiss the Benedict option as formulated in Rod's spears at our throat mode. Such because such dismissal will be wonderfully convenient for me, and he's saying that doesn't mean that my reservations are wrong. It just means that I need to think a little more clearly about them. Um, this is something I think that we'll continue to talk about um, as as life goes on here. But certainly, I I am of the opinion that the church exists for those who are not yet a part of it, and that to retreat is sort of mm-hmm. antithetical to everything. Um, we believe so mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess i am pretty critical of it uh and yet i don't want to dismiss the real uh antagonism that christians that i know have do feel and 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 i don't want to dismiss it as saying just 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 buck up or you know mm-hmm. you're wrong to feel that way which i think sometimes you get from uh the more liberal christian uh voices so yeah, it's I think this kept reminding me of um, Brueggemann's whole talk about imagination and what it means for the church to live according to a reality that we can't yet see and to actually uh, live it into existence. And mm-hmm. um, I was also reading today about Elul and how he had this idea of being iconoclasts, that uh, there's a tension between, on the one hand, our contemporary sacred myths and secular religions, and on the other hand, Ilul's commitment to a God who unconditionally loves his creatures. This tension is the conflict between the revelation of that love and our secular religious commitments to technique and a nation state. And so to the extent that Ilul could live by faith and accept that he was loved, he was able to challenge the cultural ground underneath his feet. So this yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. iconoclastic... Yeah. Approach is the only thing that I know how to do. And I, I tend to like people like Elul or Bonhoeffer or Tom, Tomas Halleck, this Czech guy who has written some amazing stuff. He's a Catholic priest and psychotherapist. Like I tend to like people – like people that are called to be missionaries generally feel called to people they love and want to understand. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to think I want to listen to missiological voices that tend to love the culture they're trying to missionize as opposed to demonize it. Like mm-hmm. and say it's – you know, so – yeah. There you go. Yeah. There's my there's my outrage and microaggression. And let's talk death. This week was Ash Wednesday for those of us in traditions that do that sort of thing and uh, the beginning of Lent. And so why not talk about transhumanism? Uh, as my dear friend and colleague Ethan Richardson preached an almost believable sermon the other day uh, at our church here in Charlottesville, in which he noted that we really missed the boat this past November and not 
you know, people voted for Trump, they voted for Hillary, they voted for, uh, you know, some other people, but they didn't, not many people voted for the most interesting candidate on the docket, which was Zoltan Istvan. And he was the candidate of the transhumanist party. Now, what was their platform? It was to uh, become godlike and overcome death, according to Zoltan himself. And, <coughs> excuse me, Zoltan is a transhumanist, meaning he's interested in life extension research. In the video that we're going to, you know, re-include from The Atlantic, which Ethan included in his post, was he says, he, he says with a straight face, I don't actually think I will die. Anyone under 50 has a very good chance to live indefinitely. And then, um, you know, they, they filmed this dude doing push-ups with a t-shirt that says, end aging or die trying. And Zoltan spent... He was doing the, the seven-minute workout. And let me tell you, mm -hmm. I will testify. The seven-minute workout is awesome. It is scientifically <laughs> researched, high-intensity interval training. And it's, it's, it's pretty... It's awesome. Well, it's a, it, this, the, the platform of this party that he, he drove around the country in a coffin-shaped bus... And sort of, he he said, I cannot believe the indifference people have to whether about death. Um, he said, I'm hoping with my immortality bus will become an important symbol in the growing longevity movement around the world. It will be a way of challenging the public's apathetic stance on whether dying is good or not. I don't think we have an apathetic stance on it, by the way. <laughs> by engaging people with a provocative, drivable giant coffin, debate is sure to occur across the United States and hopefully around the world. I am a firm believer that the great next great civil rights debate will be on transhumanism. And they sort of this video and uh, the accompanying profile in the New York Times magazine, they, they, they profile all these transhumanists. And they, you know, what does this mean? If people really do, if there is the technology out there to pr prolong life indefinitely, will the divide between rich and poor become the divide between mortal and immortal? You know, will it become what happens to dictators? Will they live forever? Um, uh, Ethan comments, he says, whether we ride around in a coffin-shaped bus or not, we're actually all on board with East Fund's uh, you know, uh, platform. That is dying good or not uh, is rhetorical if for everyone. No one wants to die. No one wants to be camping out, as Jesus puts it, where moth and rust uh, destroy. No matter how you slice it, dying is not good ever. And when it comes down to it, we're all practical immortalists, which is one reason why Ash Wednesday is one of those holidays that's never going to be co-opted by our culture at large. And then Ethan goes on to quote George Saunders' amazing new book, Leakin and the Bardo. And if people haven't read his review of it, I'm just, I'm just promoting Ethan here today. But he gets in the head of Abraham Lincoln after his son dies and says, he's talking about death. He says, this is a trap, a horrible trap. At one's birth, it is sprung that some last day must arrive when you will need to get out of this body. Bad enough, but then we bring a baby here. The terms of the trap are compounded. That baby must also depart. All pleasures should be tainted by that knowledge. But hopeful, dear us, we forget. Lord, what is this? All of this walking about, trying, smiling, bowing, joking, this sitting down at table. <clears throat> Pressing of shirts, tying of ties, shining of shoes, planning of trips, singing of songs in the bath. I mean, this death, is, it's, an, it's an offensive thing to be told, and it is something we, we, we suppress. As Ethan writes, it is offensive to hear that everything you do say, accomplish, maintain, rear up, or influence one day will be snuffed out. But what is even more offensive to hear is that Jesus is saying that none of those things are, will change your score sheet with the Almighty. In Lent, we were supposed to ask, what if this actually were true? 
What if upon making it to the pearly gates, Jesus said nothing about how timely you always were, how generous you were with your peers? What if he didn't credit you with the good choices you made or the temptations you avoided? Once you got past the unbearable embarrassment of it, that no great thing you achieved or didn't achieve was really getting you points, once you got past that, wouldn't that sound kind of nice? That all the striving and elbowing forward, all the talk about making a mark or being remembered, all of that was rendered mute? What if it were true? Well, it might sound kind of freeing. I suppose. Hmm. 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 I loved the conversation. There was a little reference in this video to to terror management theory, um, this anthropological kind of concept that we manage fear by trying to gain a sense of control again. So the studies were shown that when people are presented with the reality of their own death, that makes them anxious, of course, and then they, they kind of want to manage that feeling by by feeling like they're in control in some way or another. And uh, for Ash Wednesday this week, I was reflecting on one of the passages from the lectionary, the temptation of Jesus passage. And I actually think this is the temptation that Satan is bringing to Jesus, is presenting Jesus with his own humanness and tempting Jesus to manage the fear of that. And each time Jesus returns back to God and says, I am human and I refuse to find shame in my humanness, and I refuse to find shame in all of humans' humanness, <laughs> and mm. um, and so I it it I, it actually is fascinating for me that just to to name this terror management that we all go through life doing, and um, even our faith can be a kind of terror management if we see it only as a way to get into heaven. Oh. Um, if it becomes instead, you know, the best kind of phobia therapy uh, brings you face to face with the thing that you're afraid of. And that's, I think, what something like Ash Wednesday does. You know, I, I, 50 times this week, I smudged somebody's forehead with, mm. with ash and said to them, remember, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Um, and so that is, you know, presenting uh, an arachnophobe with a spider, basically. Um, mm. Presenting all of us who are afraid of our own mortality with the reality of our own mortality as a way to release us from the fear of it, so that we're no longer just managing the terror, but uh, truly can somehow learn to be less afraid. With Jesus as our example, of course, as someone who has looked death in the face, stepped into it, and emerged triumphant. And so that just is, I don't know, feels hopeful to me. Yeah, it is. You know, I was thinking, I was reading this, that, uh, in Danny Kahneman's, the psychologist who is written about in Michael Lewis's new book, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he, there's this study where they say, they ask air travelers whether they want to buy insurance, and when asked how much they're willing to pay for $100,000 worth of insurance for an upcoming flight covering death due to any reason, subjects report a certain number. When asked how much they're willing to pay for $100,000 of insurance for death due to terrorist attack only, they report a substantially higher number. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and so, and even though the other one would cover terrorist attacks, and some of the theories like that people think about the ending of their life, how their story ends, and how that creates meaning and happiness. I think, you know, I was uh, doing the lecturing podcast this week with Jacob, but we talked about Jay Gresham Machen at the end of his life wrote a telegram to his, his friend John Murray and said, active obedience of Christ couldn't live without it. And that Jesus, yeah, I mean, I think Jesus didn't just die the death we should have died, but lived the life we should have lived. And so there's this sense in which, you know, you walk around like a little town like Langhorn where I live, and there are these little signs, George Washington's here, the Continental Congress, and somehow it, it, it's sort of like, well, this is sacred or set special 
and the civic imagination because the founding father was here. And I feel like the part of the the beauty of the grace of the incarnation is the full range of human experience. It's like the king is tabernacled here on your high, your mountaintops and your valleys mm-hmm. on the days where you're full of meaning and the days where meaningless is all that there seems to be. In those moments, you're no further away from the the humanity taken up into the Godhead, um, mm-hmm. which is the gift uh, of the incarnation and something to be mindful of in Lent. And thank you all for chatting today. Mm, it's been good. And Mandy, we will have you back to good. do this. Thank Anytime. you, Mandy. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.